If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Ruth chapter 3. Um, if you don't have your Bible, the scripture we're looking at is printed in the bulletin uh, on the inside cover. We're going to be looking at Ruth 3, verses 1 through 18. So friends, listen. This is the word of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, whose young women, uh, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. Although some of you may not believe that this is God's word. <clears throat> and we'll talk about this. Um, as we've said during the first three chapters of this, uh, in, the, in the previous two sermons, this story gives us a window into the Christmas story. Okay, it's connected to Christmas. The third Advent candle is the angels and shepherds candle. Right, the angels and shepherds we rehearsed, they came and they worshipped God and they shared the good news of Jesus' birth. Right? They saw what was coming and they celebrated. They've been longing for God to rescue Israel. And Christmas is the time. It's that time when they finally see that the rescuer has come in Jesus. And so they worship and they share 
And, and so Christmas, it brings us hope. You know, it brings us hope too here because we know that God cares so much. He cares so much about us that he came to bring healing and growth and strength in Jesus. And so Christmas brings hope, but it also brings tension. Okay, Christmas brings tension because it's the beginning of the climax of the story, not the end. Right? God has promised a Savior and has delivered on the promise. I mean, literally delivered on Christmas morning. He delivers on the promise, um, but that salvation hasn't happened yet. Right? He's born, but he's not, he hasn't saved the world yet. And so the same thing is true with Ruth and Naomi. Right? These are two widows. God has begun to provide for them, but they still don't have a future. Right? They still have no hope beyond their lives that their family will continue. And so not just for them, but I think for us also, we live in the same tension. Um, we all hope for things to improve, but we're constantly dealing with problems in our lives. Right? We hear the good news of the gospel. We hear these promises of God, especially at Christmas. But then, why is my life this way? Right? We struggle with wanting to be different uh, than how we are. Right? We struggle with wanting other people in our lives to be different from how they are. We struggle with wanting our circumstances to be different than the way that they are. And even when we believe in Jesus, even when we begin to follow God and return to him, we continue to live in this tension, this tension of waiting, of longing. That's partly what Advent's about. It's this tension of longing. We're waiting to celebrate the coming of our Savior, right? I mean, Advent teaches us that we have this glorious hope that Jesus came and did these things, but his work is not yet completed in us. Right? We live in this tension between what we want to be and what we are. And as we pursue God and we pursue the life that he intends for us, there are problems that we face as we seek his redemption. And in Ruth chapter 3, we're going to see three kinds of problems that we face. Okay, we're going to look at each of the three people in this chapter, Naomi, Ruth, and then Boaz. <clears throat> Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And so first, um, let's look at Naomi. Naomi's faith is immature. Okay, Naomi's faith is immature. So let's look a little bit at the text, and then we'll dive in with what this means. Um, I want you to see the change in Naomi. Naomi, verse 1, says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So all of a sudden now, Naomi wants Ruth to be cared for. She wants Ruth to be provided for. She's interested in Ruth's condition. And she's got an idea. Verse 2, isn't Boaz our relative? This was the practice in the ancient world. People married within their clans because their property needed to stay within the family. And so when you marry within the family, your family, the, the property, your land stays there. Um, and so Naomi brings up Boaz to Ruth. And so what do we see here? If you've been with us, um, from chapter 1, Naomi was this bitter woman, right? She was a bitter woman who had lost hope. She thought God was against her, right? And she was isolating herself, right? She wanted her daughters-in-law to leave her. She wanted to be alone. She wanted to not have anybody in her life. And so she goes from being this bitter and isolating woman. But look at her here. 
She's now concerned and wanting to care for the needs of someone else. You see that? I mean, this is a transformation. She has come out of her shell, and now she's concerned for Ruth. And what is it? What's brought her out of her shell? It wasn't a curse. It wasn't a threat. But it was actually God's kindness. God's kindness. I think we have this verse. Oh, we don't. Okay. Romans 2.4 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this. It says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The thing that causes us to turn back to God in our lives is knowing that he is good and he is kind. And God has shown his kindness to Naomi. In chapter 1, he showed it to her through Ruth, right, her devoted love. In chapter 2, God showed his kindness to Naomi um, through Ruth's faithfulness and through Boaz's incredible, gracious generosity. And what we see here is that that kindness of God that's been expressed through people has finally captured Naomi's heart. She has been won over. Right? Have you ever had that experience where you've been angry, you've been like, you don't even want to talk, you just want to be angry, you want to feed your anger, and yet someone comes and says, hey, what's going on? Talk to me. You begin to open up, and they begin to give you a different perspective. They begin to remind you of who you are and, and what God's promises are, and you begin to realize, wait a second, and your heart begins to soften. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And now, like she's gone from being blessed to now being a blessing to Ruth. Okay, And that is a process that all of us need to go through. That's part of the process of spiritual maturity. Um, for every single one of you, God wants you to go from experiencing his blessings, and that never stops. So what happens is you begin to experience God's blessings, and then you learn how to become a blessing to others. That's the process of spiritual maturity. And so, question, do you have anyone right now in your life that you are seeking to bless? Is there anyone that you feel um, like you want to take responsibility for blessing? Is there anybody that you are concerned about, that you want to seek rest for them? You want to make sure that things are well with them? Naomi is showing us <clears throat> the process of spiritual growth. Now, so that's the good news about Naomi. <laughs> She's got a real faith here. She's come back to God. The, the, the problem is that her advice to Ruth is questionable at best. Okay? Anybody else, when I was reading that, wonder, like, She's saying what I think she's saying? <laughs> um, here, I'll, I'll give you, well, and let's look, let's just make sure you, you saw it. Verse 3. We'll make sure. <clears throat> Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Okay, honey, get on your best dress, take a shower, perfume, look good, right, and go. But, 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 but wait until after he's had a few drinks. <laughs> and then find out where he goes to sleep. And then verse 4. When he lies down, 
observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. So there are, when I was in seminary and I was in Hebrew, uh, in my Hebrew classes, there were times when the seminary professor would say, well, this is what it says in Hebrew, but since this is the Bible, they didn't translate that into English. You know, they cleaned it up because this is the Bible. And, but then he would tell us like, what it means in Hebrew, and we're like, wow, like how did they not get, you know, and so they've, so let me just give you, this is the quote, this is my Hebrew professor, and what he says in a great book, it's called Esther and Ruth, Ruth Ian Dugan is the uh, author, he was uh, one of my professors, and he says this, he says, Naomi's instructions to Ruth are extremely ambiguous. Now, when he says ambiguous here, he just means that, that you could take it two ways. So it's not like we don't know what he's talking about, there's just two different ways you could take this, Okay. And then he says, even more so in the Hebrew original, where virtually every word in verse 4 is capable of more than one sense. Now, he doesn't really mean more than one sense. He means two senses. Okay? There's two senses that you can take this. In fact, when he talks about these words in Hebrew in verse 4, every single one of these words is sometimes used in other parts of the Old Testament to refer to sex, to refer to a man's genitals. Um, and so Naomi is telling her, look, hey, we know how life is. We remember how life was back in Moab. I'm like, yeah, this isn't, you know what? This is, this is just how things, this is how it works. This is how it works. Go and seduce Boaz. Because if you can get him to have sex with you, the chances are very good that he'll marry you. Because he's an honorable man. I think that what Naomi's doing here is Naomi is expressing an understandable but immature faith. Okay? I mean, if we're going to examine this for what it is and take a step back, like what's, we all understand what Naomi's trying to do. You have two widows, right? Two widows who are destitute. Two widows who are receiving blessing from this farmer. And Naomi says, hey, let's take this to the next level. And she gives Ruth advice that wasn't uncommon in the day. Um, but tells her, go and seduce Boaz because things will work out well for us if you do. And I think when we look at it in this way, um, we see that it, this is sort of just the mentality that says, look, the end justifies the means. The end justifies the means. Um, it would be a good thing if Boaz were to marry you. We need to be, we need a family, we need a future, um, we need security. And so, Ruth, go do this. And I think while we can understand it, um, in fact, I think in some ways, um, I mean, we are guilty of this, aren't we? I mean, think about it. Think about the different areas where we're tempted. You know, we, if you believe in God, you trust that he loves you. You trust that he's going to provide for you. But we're not really sure in some areas of our lives if he's really going to come through for us. Right? I mean, in the area of relationships, this is a big one. This is a huge one in the area of relationships. I don't know if God's going to provide for me a man or a woman that I, that, you know, that, that, that's going to take care of me. I don't, I don't want to be alone. And so we cut corners. We begin to compromise. 
think that's what Naomi is doing. We hide truth in relationships. We ignore what God says. We ignore the advice of the people that care about us. We sometimes get angry instead of getting understanding in conflict. Um, we might cheat and cut corners at work. Right? All because, look, we know what we're trying to aim for. It's a good thing. And when we do this, these are indications of a faith that is immature. Okay? It doesn't mean you don't have faith, but it means your faith needs to grow. The faith that you have that trusts God needs to be applied. You need to trust God in these different situations. And so from Ruth's perspective, in her own relationship with God, she's facing this problem. She's got this immature advice that she's being given. And the question is, will she take it? Will she take it? That's what we're going to see next. That's what we're going to see next. So um, Naomi's faith is immature. Uh, the second point we're going to look at is Ruth's path demands courage. So in verse 6, Ruth goes to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor, this is a barn that didn't have walls, um, where they would gather all of the stalks after they bound them up after harvesting. They'd, they'd stack them up there and make this giant pile. And then they would begin to either beat the stalks, or they would walk on them, or they'd have animals walk on the stalks. Because the point was, you needed to get the, the heads of grain out of, out, of the, out of the stalks. And so they would just pound them, or they'd have like, sometimes they'd take long boards and drag them across with people standing on them to try to get these like seeds of barley out of the husks, okay? And then after that, they would winnow them. They'd throw it up into the air, and the wind would carry away the chaff, the stuff that wasn't food, and the grain would drop down. And so uh, that's where he was. And so this was kind of like your bank, right? This is your bank, because back then, barley was gold, Right? That's what you use to make food. It's what you could use to trade. And so Boaz would sleep at the end where the barley, like the giant stack to protect it. Okay? And so that's where Ruth goes. Ruth goes to the threshing floor. Um, and then she uncovers his feet and lays down. And at this point, we still don't know what Ruth is doing. But, you know, this is kind of where sometimes, you know, parents like cover their kids' ears. Right? Because we don't know what, what's going to happen here. And Ruth sounds like she's doing exactly what Naomi is telling her to do. Well, then verse 8, right at midnight, Boaz turns over and realizes there's a woman at his feet. And it was dark. He couldn't see. They didn't have light back then, right? So he asked, verse 9, who are you? Who are you? And this is the moment for Ruth, right? What's she going to do? What is she going to say? Is she going to seduce him? She's going to pursue a good idea that will compromise the integrity that she has. Well, in verse 9, she says, um, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she immediately says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, what's she saying here? Well, this image of spreading your wings over someone um, back in that culture, it was like giving them an engagement ring. Okay, and so what Ruth is saying is, she's saying, be a husband to me. Be my redeemer. That's what she's saying. So she immediately says, I want you to be my husband. I want you to redeem me. Now, what's this redeemer? We, we saw a hint of it in chapter 2. Um, what is a redeemer? Let me show you where this comes from. There's two passages. 
Uh, one of them is Leviticus 25, 25. It says this, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Okay, and so the idea here was that if you fell on hard times and you couldn't afford what you needed to live, you could sell your property. But if you sold your property, it wasn't good that it got out of the family because, and this is a longer story, but God wanted the, the families to maintain their inheritance of the land. And so your nearest relative would come and could buy that property back, could pay the price to get it back out of hawk, in a sense, or out of being sold. And so the nearest redeemer would come and, uh, and redeem what his brother has sold. So that would bring it back into the family. Um, and then Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, <clears throat> adds, it's not just land, but if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Because um, if that were to happen, then all that the wife owned would become part of this other family's property, and we don't want that. So her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And so this was part of redeeming, uh, this is part of redemption. And so Ruth is saying, be my redeemer. Um, buy our property and marry me. Marry me. And so um, another quote from the author that I told you about a minute ago, he said this, instead of leaving the situation dangerously ambiguous, as a woman of character, Ruth wanted to make her intentions clear right from the outset. Her goal was a commitment to marriage, not a single night of passion. And that's Ruth's response. And I just, I want to say that this response, it took incredible courage. For Ruth to respond this way took incredible courage because she put herself in real danger, right? Going at night out to a field. Um, I mean, we saw last chapter that just being out there working during the daytime was dangerous enough. Somebody could take her, somebody could rape her, um, and then to go at night, right, and to lay at the feet of someone when so much could be assumed. She could have been taken advantage of, she could have been raped, she could have lost her reputation in the community, um, and yet she had courage. Like She had courage to go do this, and in the moment she had the courage to do the right thing. She had the courage to say, look, what I'm looking for is marriage. What I'm looking for is a long-term commitment. I'm not looking to do something wrong. I'm looking to do something right. And it took courage for her to stand up. Because in that culture, you just didn't do that. Women would never do that. And yet she did. She did. And as I thought about this, as I saw Ruth, you know, wondering like what she was thinking when Naomi gave her the advice and then the time between her leaving and then when she's leaving on, their, on her way, like all the things that would go through her mind and the courage that she must have had to overcome her fears and to stand up and do the right thing. And I realized, you know what, honestly, most of us don't want to have to have that kind of courage. And so hear what I'm saying here. I feel like a lot of times we don't, like, like this is a courage that most of us don't want to have to have. Okay? Let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. Um, we want to have courage. We want to be courageous. 
but we don't want to be in situations where we have to have courage. Are you with me? You know, some of us feel like, you know what, if we're doing God's will, then life should be easy. That's a lie. This is a courage that most of us don't want to have to have. Because she doesn't wait. She doesn't wait for him. She doesn't see which way he goes. She makes it clear from the beginning. Like, this is what I'm looking for. I'm here. I'm here because I want you to marry me. And I think it's important for us to realize that this is part of our path. This is part of your path if you're following Jesus. Okay, if you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that all of your life is going to work out, that all of your circumstances are going to line up, that it's like B Street in the morning when you're driving into downtown, that every light just turns green in succession, right? It's this incredible feeling that you have if you drive in on B Street, if you time it right. <laughs> That's not the Christian life. It's not the Christian life. God is going to ask you to trust him. God is going to stretch your faith and he's going to, he's going to demand that you have courage. And I know some of your stories. I know the kind of courage and the kind of faith that your circumstances require. And I want you to know that if you're suffering, you're not outside of God's will. Just because it's hard, just because it demands courage, just because it's not certain doesn't mean you're not in the right place. And we just, we need to be reminded of this. Sometimes when life is hardest, it's because we are right exactly where God wants us. Because God needs a man or a woman or a child. He needs someone in that place standing up with courage. And so, it is a problem for us if we think that our life following Jesus is supposed to be easy. But Ruth tells us no. Ruth tells us no. And so, point three. Let's look at Boaz because it's going to get worse. Um, Boaz has to follow God when it's hard. Boaz has to follow God when it's hard. In verse 10, Boaz is blown away by what Ruth says. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. What's he saying here? He's saying um, this last kindness is the fact that she wants him. The first kindness is what he said to her in chapter 2, where he had that conversation with her and he said, it's been well known what you have done for your mother-in-law since the time that your husband died. And so his, her first kindness was her devotion to Naomi. Um, her last kindness is this expression that she wants him. Boaz is flattered. I think he's flattered. Um, I think from his words, it seems that he might have been interested, but he wasn't willing to pursue her because it seems like he's much older than she is. Okay, he refers to young men. He calls her his daughter. Um, and so I think, um, I mean, he ref yeah, he, and I think that this is an indication that Boaz looked at her, you know, and thought, oh man, wouldn't it be great if I were 10 years younger? Wouldn't it be great if I was 15 years younger? 
And so never thought that Ruth would be looking at him because he's just assuming that she's going to be going after young men, whether poor or rich. And so he's elated. And he says, you are, a well, you are well known in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, you're well known. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Boaz is saying, like, you're a catch. You're an incredible woman. And I'm interested. I'm interested. And I mean, just as, a, as an aside, so Ruth is called a worthy woman by the people who live in this town. Right? Ruth was a Moabite. Right? She was a foreigner who was part of Israel's enemies. They were cursed people that did all kinds of their culture was awful. And yet now she's a worthy woman. And I just think it's cool. And I think it's important for all of us to realize that sometime in the last 10 years, Ruth became a worthy woman. Okay? So there's still hope for all of us. No matter how old you are, there is still hope for you to become a worthy man or a worthy woman. One that the community of people who know you would think highly of you. Right? Don't give up. Don't give up. There is so much that God wants to do in you and through you. And so, this is like the climax of the story. Right? Verse 11. So he keeps going. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Right? I know that you're a worthy woman. And then verse 12, it gets even better. He says, and it's true that I am a redeemer. You know, if this is a movie and you're watching this on film, like you hear the soundtrack begin to get louder, right? The violins are playing. The music is coming. They're leaning in, right? And all of a sudden, screech! Like everything stops. And he says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. This reminds me of the Princess Bride, right? Where the grandfather's reading the story, and he says, Buttercup marries Humperdinck, and then he's like, whoa, 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 Grandpa, hold on, hold on, you read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck, she marries Wesley, I'm just sure of it. After all that Wesley did, she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. And the grandfather says, well, who says life is fair? Where's that written? Life isn't always fair. And the kid says, I'm telling you, you're messing up the story, now get it right! That's what's going on here. I will do for you all that you ask, for I am a redeemer. And yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. What? No. No. Like, this is wrong. This is messed up. But this is the story we have. There's, there's someone else. There's someone else in line before me. I mean, you can imagine the emotion that's coming through Boaz as he's telling Ruth this. It's like, oh my goodness, like this is my hopes and my dreams. Like, I didn't even think I could get a girl like you. And for Ruth, she's like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And then he begins to tell her, yes, I'll do everything that you want. And then Boaz has to say, wait a second, though. There's someone in front of me. There's someone in line. Someone else has the right to marry you before me. And we have to see if they want to. Evidently, in the scriptures that we looked at, there was a pecking order, right? And there was some 
uh, there were some benefits to being able to, to redeem property. If it was a good property, if it was, you know, if it could make money, you know, there'd be different reasons why people would want to redeem the property. Um, uh, and or the woman, right? Especially if Ruth is this amazing woman, like, and so we read this and we think, whoa, like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? And when I think about it, I think, well, you know what? Life happened. Because isn't this, not always, but isn't this often what happens in our story? Like, isn't this often what happens? Where we think, like, okay, everything's lining up. Okay, it could be relationship. This is the girl. This is the guy. It could be a job. This is it. I finally, I've been waiting, and I've been, and now finally it's cut. And yet, something gets in the way. I think the principle here, I think the principle here that we're learning is that like this is how life is, even for the people who are doing everything that God wants them to do. Okay, you need to hear that. You need to hear that, that this is characteristic of the life of the people who are doing everything that God wants them to do. Because sometimes we think, oh man, there must be something wrong with me. Like, I don't believe enough. I don't, I'm not whatever enough, right? And if I was like him, like her, then everything goes right for them, but not for me because something's wrong with me. But these are two righteous people who have God's best intentions in their hearts, in their minds, in their actions. And yet this happens to them as well. Again, I know so many of you are going through stuff like this. Where you put all of your energy into a basket and you finally get a breakthrough. You finally think, okay, this is finally it. And then something else is waiting just around the corner to stop everything. The progress that we feel like we make is sometimes just painstakingly slow. And I just, if that's where you are today, I just, I want you to hear that, you know what, you're in good company. You're in good company, okay? Like, <laughs> you might not like what this says about God, so let's leave that aside for a second, but, um, but you're in good company. These are righteous people who are walking with God and doing everything right. And if your life is like them, you're in good company. But this is hard because where Boaz is stuck, Boaz is stuck between, oh man, this is everything that I'd want. This is, this is a perfect capstone onto my own life's goals and ambitions, right? Everything that I've ever wanted, and I haven't had a wife, so this is it. And yet, I know that there's someone in between. I know there's someone that we need to check with first. There are so many ways that Boaz could cut this corner. Um, but he's not willing to do that. He's not willing to do that, which shows his integrity. Right? I want this as much as you do, Ruth, but there's something that we need to do. We need to do, we need to do this right. We need to pursue this the right way. And so Boaz cuts, cuts the music. <laughs> Boaz stops leaning in for the kiss 
um, because he says, you know what, like, we need, ultimately, we need to honor God in this. If God has spoken, it's important to him. And we need to honor that. Man, there's so many ways this can go. Um, my hope as your pastor is that all of you would have this heart. Is that you would be willing to follow God when it's hard. That you would be willing to put God and his word above everything else in your life. Boaz knows that what is actually more important than achieving his goals, even his good goals, what's more important than achieving his good and godly goals is walking with his God on the way to those goals. Let me say that again. What is more important than Boaz getting to his goals is that Boaz is walking with God on the way to his goals. If you can receive that today, um, there are lots of things that change in a life that, that is convinced of that. When you believe that walking with God on the way to your goals is more important than actually reaching your goals, um, that brings your faith to a level and that will enable you to experience God in more precious and more personal ways. That's what God wants for us. He loves to give us gifts. He loves to give us the things that we pray for. And he loves to say yes to us. But what he loves even more than that is that we have a relationship with him. So that we don't come to him simply like an ATM machine whenever we need something, whenever we need money. Right? God wants to walk with us. And it's hard. It's really, really difficult. And so often nobody knows actually how we're doing in this area. So often nobody knows if we're actually walking with God on the way to our goals. Because we can hide. What's amazing though, <laughs> when you are convinced of this and you're walking with God, the goals do become wonderfully secondary. you end up in this amazing freedom with this amazing sense of peace that is able to say, I'd like for this to happen. But if it doesn't, that's okay because I'm walking with my God. This is how the psalmist could say, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Um, we have a great song that we sing sometimes, and it says, From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Jesus came not, not to make this life perfect for us, but he came to walk with us so that we would be strong enough, so that we'd be strong enough to walk with him through everything life throws at us, and so that we could keep shining the light on him.
there's a lot between me and the goals that I have set. And sometimes I don't even know if those goals are the best thing for me. Do you ever feel that way? I'm not even sure if that's really, you know, the best thing for me. But I'm gonna, I gotta aim at something, so I'm gonna aim at that. Um, there's so much that's uncertain. But what I have control over is being able to walk with Jesus. What I have control over is being able to spend time with him and to make sure that he loves my goals. To make sure that he can speak into my goals and my life and my relationships and the things that I do at home, at work, in my community. Right? And the peace, like life, it's about the journey. It's about the journey. And this doesn't mean not to set goals. Right? Because when you achieve the goals and Jesus has been with you in the process, man, that's when your goals really satisfy. If you've ever set a goal and achieved it and felt like, oh man, is that all there is? Typically, typically it's because in the process of getting there, you weren't walking with God. And so this chapter ends with tension. We don't know what's going to happen next. We just don't know. I mean, even Boaz giving her these six measures of barley um, in, uh, in verse 17. Um, I'm sorry, that's when she gets home with him. Uh, but he gives her barley in the morning uh, in verse 15. That's 80 pounds. So that's double what he gave her in chapter 2, if you remember that. Um, but I'm sitting there thinking, like, even with that, like, I can imagine Boaz is, like, handing over the barley to her. And yet, like, what could have been this amazing, like, betrothal, engagement, present, you know, it's like, it's nothing. It's awful. It's like every, every ounce more of kindness that Boaz is giving to her is just making it worse. Because he loves her, and she loves him, and they're not together, and they can't be. Right? And so the chapter ends with tension. Um, and so come back next week and you'll find out what happens. Um, because, because, or you can read ahead. You can do that too. <clears throat> I think it ends with tension because it's a good story. Um, I'm ending the sermon here with tension because so often our lives are in this tension. We just don't know what the next chapter is going to be. Like some of you don't know what your next chapter is going to be with this thing that you're struggling with. It's so hard to follow God's ways. Um, but I want you to remember, like what I want you to remember um, is Christmas. Right? I want you to remember the story of Christmas because even though you don't know the future, you know the past. Right? And the past can give us confidence about the future. Right. What you know for sure is that God loved you so much that he came. He came to be a part of your life, to enter in, not so that everything would work out, because clearly that's not how it is. But he came so that you would have the strength and the courage and the faith that you need to face anything. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we... We come to you expressing honestly the tension that we feel. That we struggle. We wish life was different than the way it is. Um, we get angry with you. We get angry with ourselves. We get angry with life. Um, it is frustrating and it moves us toward bitterness. 
And sometimes it's not our whole life is bitter. Sometimes it's just a certain area of our life that feels bitter. And we come to you and acknowledge that sometimes it feels so right and yet it's wrong. And Jesus, we just we we bow before you and we confess together that we do trust you and we need our faith to grow. That there are areas of our lives where we need to trust you more. So thank you for making it clear that the tension is part of the journey. Thank you that when we turn to you, the tension becomes an opportunity for us to see you in our lives. That you enter into the tension. That Ruth put herself in danger, and yet she was saved from danger. Jesus, we know that when you came and put yourself into danger, that you were crucified for us. That you were forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. So thank you for that. Please speak to us and help us to follow you in the tension and to see you there. And for those who are here and they're not trusting you yet, I pray that you would speak to them and help them to know that the tension that they're feeling is a doorway that leads back to you, that you can help and you will help. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.